Bibles and turn to, turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Two years ago, um, roughly today, I preached my first sermon here at CBBC. And for two months, no one else showed up. <laughs> Perhaps I should have taken that personally, but thank God I didn't. And, um, and I pressed on. But uh, it's amazing um, to think that I've been here for two years. It, it feels a lot longer in a good way. It really does. Um, I've uh, gotten to know many of you uh, deeply, and I praise the Lord for my time here and how the Lord has kept, um, kept us here, even in the midst of the pandemic and even afterwards. Um, somebody uh, right before the service began asked me how long I've been here. I said, it's been two years. I'm going on my third. And they said, praise the Lord. That's a record for you. And uh, I said, yes. Yes, it is. And I hope it continues at least uh, for a little bit. So we thank the Lord for that. Well, let's continue our series in the book of Colossians. Hear now the word of the Lord. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. This is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, indeed, we thank you for the wonder of your word that grounds us, that encourages us, that keeps our confidence high, not in ourselves, but in you. Thank you so much for the power of your grace that is given to us who believe that you hold us fast by it. Lord, today your people have come to hear from you, and I pray that that might be the case. May the words that I say be a source of grace in their lives, not just for the purpose of acquiring knowledge, but for the purpose of um, knowing you, the purpose of transforming them into the image of your Son. And so bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, for those of you that have been with us, you know that we've been going through a series on the book of Colossians in which we're talking about Christ as our treasure and the treasures that we have in Christ. One way to look at that is the benefits that flow from our relationship, our union with Christ. And we've looked at several thus far. We've looked at the fact that because we are in Christ and because uh, Christ is ours, we are his saints. And we have the privilege of being his saints. Another thing that we looked at Last week, it's the fact that Christ is in us, and that gives us remarkable hope. That you have a hope that transcends this world, a hope that transcends 
beyond what is going on in our world today. And so today we're going to look at another one of those treasures. And Paul says it right here in verse number three. It's the treasure of wisdom. It's the treasure of wisdom. Now let me say this. With all that's going on in our world today and all that's happening in our lives and our families, that all that's happening, all the decisions that we make on a regular basis, I hope, Christian, that you are praying for wisdom. I hope every day you get up, you are praying for the Lord to give you a spirit of wisdom to live in this world. Um, a well-known Christian uh, pastor and author, Tim Keller, I think most of you know him. Um, for those that don't know uh, Tim Keller, you'd be uh, blessed to read his works. But Tim Keller said this, and this caught my eye. He said, wisdom is knowing the right thing to do in the 80% of life situations in which moral rules don't provide clear answers. Pause for a moment and consider that. 80% of the decisions that you make on a regular basis, you can't clearly open up the Bible and see an answer for it. Now, now I want to be very clear. The Bible always tells us how to act in every single situation. That's why we have the fruit of the Spirit. We should have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control at all times. The, the Bible always tells you how to act. That is clear. There's no doubt about that. But one of the things the Bible doesn't tell you is should you leave your job that you're on right now and go to another job? You will not find that in the Bible, right? What the Bible will not tell you is who you should date, and what the Bible should not tell you is who you should marry. Now, it tells you the kind of person, but it doesn't tell you who. There's so much in the Bible that the Bible doesn't tell us, but it gives us principles for us to act on and work on, and that's why we need to be reading it and understanding it. But Keller's absolutely right. 80% of the decisions you make each and every day, it's going to require wisdom. Now, let me say this. In the face of this reality, our world has a serious problem. Because our world equates information with wisdom. Right? Our world says that if you can Google it, you can do it. If you can Google it, you can get the answer you want. But I want to tell you today that information is vastly different from wisdom. Information is simply the accumulation of knowledge. Sure, you can go on Google and you can learn just about everything, right? And I use Google a lot, and I thank the Lord for it because it's very helpful. But Google does not give us wisdom. Biblical wisdom, according to the Bible, is the application of truth, the skillful application of truth to a particular situation that yields fruit for the kingdom of God. That's biblical wisdom. And that, my friend, takes the power of God. That takes God working in our lives. That takes a relationship from God. You can't get that on the Internet. That comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how you receive wisdom. And that's the point of what Paul is saying here. And Paul tells us two things in this passage. First of all, he tells us the importance of wisdom. And second of all, he tells us clearly where to find it. So let's look at that quickly. 
First of all, the importance of wisdom. The importance of wisdom is found in verse 1 through 4. Paul says this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. Uh, drop down to verse number 2. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the fullness of assurance and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. And then he says in verse number 3, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Then in verse number 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with possible arguments. Now follow Paul's train of, train of thought here because it's so important. First of all, Paul says that I am struggling, struggling. Now how is Paul struggling? Paul is in, in prison. He can't physically be there with them. So how is Paul struggling? Paul is struggling in prayer. In fact, the word here for struggle is the word igon. It's the Greek word igon where we get the word agony. Paul says, I am in agony praying for you. Why? Because I want you to have wisdom. I want you to have knowledge. That's why I'm agonizing on your behalf. In fact, the word here is the word for struggle, like fight, as if you're in a war. You're fighting, and you're, you're doing business with God. You're, you're beseeching God. For what reason? Why is Paul in agony? Because he so desperately wants these people to act in a wise and godly manner. That's why Paul is struggling. Now, let me say this, because this is very important. You don't fight or agonize with something unless it's important. You don't fight and agonize for something unless it's important. Recently, I was watching um, footage on the war in Ukraine. And you see, you see so many images coming out of that. You, see, you hear so many stories. But the story that caught my attention was two young ladies. Both of them were maybe early 20s. Maybe early 20s. And, and the reporter was asking them, like, who are you and why are you here? And both women, one of them at least actually spoke up and she said, you know, before I was here, I was actually teaching children. I was teaching them how to make makeup. And she said, it's, it's crazy that a week later, I'm here fighting for my country. And she said, the reason why I'm fighting for my country is because I, I don't want us to be enslaved. I, I want us to have our freedom. And you can tell the agony on her face as she faces the very real possibility of death. She was agonizing. The same imagery is here. Paul says, I am in agony praying for you. I'm in agony beseeching God that you would have wisdom. Now, those of you that have children that don't know the Lord, you know the agony that you go in trying to beseech God for or on behalf of your children. Or those of you in general who just have people that you're praying for. We, in our family, we have people that we pray for. We agonize in prayer that they might come to know the Lord. That's what's pictured here. And you don't agonize over something unless it's radically important. So what is Paul agonizing for? First of all, and notice in verse number two, Paul says, I am agonizing that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Here's what Paul is agonizing for, that each and every one of them put their full trust and measure in Christ for all wisdom and nothing else. Paul says that's a huge problem. 
closest, one of the dangers in our Christian life is for us to trust the wisdom that comes from this world and the wisdom that comes even for ourselves. And Paul is saying, I pray that you don't trust in yourself, that you don't seize control of your own life. And through, um, through man-made religion, through man-made means, you try to live your life in light of that. You know, some of us really struggle with controlling situations. You know, some of us in here, we, we, we get anxious and we get frustrated if we are not in control of a situation. And the Word of God says clearly that we are never in control of a situation. That's the irony. The irony of life is that we think somehow, some way, by our deeds and our actions, we could control a situation. We, you know, we're like the children on the playground. Have you ever gone to a playground and you see children play? There's always one kid on the playground that thinks they're in charge of everybody else. And they act like that, right? They start telling everybody what to do. They're starting, they, they control where people go. They get angry and frustrated when people aren't doing exactly what they're doing or playing in the way they want uh, to play. And so they get frustrated and angry, and you're just sitting over there and saying, these kids have no clue. They're not in control of anything. They didn't drive themselves there. They're not going to drive themselves back. They just learned how to use the bathroom like a year ago. And now they think they can control the whole playground. Isn't it interesting? That's exactly how we are. We haven't even figured out life yet, and yet we want to control our own. We're still walking around in constant existential crisis, and yet we think we could control the lives of our husbands or our wives or our children. We cannot. Only God can. And Paul is agonizing because Paul knows the danger of what happens when we, as children of God, think that we can control our lives and not the living and risen Savior. That's why Paul is agonizing. But Paul is agonizing for another reason. And notice with me, it's in verse number four. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with, with plausible arguments. What's Paul saying there? The second reason why Paul is agonizing in prayer over these people is he just doesn't want them to fall in error. That's what plausible wisdom means. The word literally means things that look good on the surface. If you look at cha uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul actually expounds on this. What is, what is the wisdom, what is the plausible words of wisdom that Paul is talking about? In verse number 21, Paul says this, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. That's the plausible words. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. And now notice this statement, because this is a powerful statement. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul says, says that these plausible words of wisdom, the things that, that are in our society that people think are so wise and so profound, on the surface, they seem plausible, but they have no value for the kingdom of heaven. They have no power in our lives. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, what are some things? Well, here's a few. How many of you heard, have ever heard my body, my choice? Right? That's a wisdom of this world. 
Some people will say, my body, my choice, meaning nobody can tell me what to do with my body. Now, here's the thing about plausible words of wisdom. They always have a tinge of truth. Is it true that your body belongs to you? Absolutely, that's true. Nobody has the right to beat you up. Nobody has a right to rape you or hurt you or anything like that. That is absolutely true. Your body should be free from other people um, accosting it or doing anything to it. But is it true that ultimately your body belongs to you? Well, according to the word of God, no. The Bible says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that you and what you do is under the complete auspice of God. That's why when you read scripture, scripture tells you there are certain things you cannot do with your body. And, we, and scripture doesn't care if you try to rationalize those things away. Yes, nobody has the right to harm you. So in that sense, your body belongs to you. But it's also not true that you can do whatever you want with your body. But that's the plausible wisdom of this world. And that wisdom is used to justify all sorts of things. From abortion to almost anything else you could imagine. But for God's people, our body doesn't belong to us. It belongs ultimately to the Lord. And if that's the case, you should be eminently concerned about what God wants, to, wants you to do with your body. Here's another one. Our money. You want to get people riled up? Tell them their, their money doesn't belong to them. Now, in one sense, yes, your money belongs to you. When you work, no one has the right to take your money from you. Nobody has the right to steal from you. Nobody has the right to cheat you out of your money. That is absolutely true. But isn't it also true that according to the Bible, you are given money by God so you can steward it to do it exactly the way or use it exactly the way God has called you to use it. Isn't that true? Absolutely it's true. If you are a Christian, your resources belong to the Lord, and it is the Lord who decides what you do with your money and not you. I got one more for you. There's also a wisdom of this world that says no one has the right to tell you what to do with your life. And that, and that manifests itself in all sorts of ways, right? Only God can judge me now. You know, all those statements that people make, you know, and they say, you know what, no one has the right to tell me what to do. Now, again, again, that has an element of truth. The Bible talks about the liberty of the conscience. No one has the right to bound your conscience. No one has the right to come into your life and bind your conscience. But at the same time, does not the Bible tell us that Christ does have a right to tell us what to do? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, And he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died and rose again. Beloved, if you're sitting in here today, it is absolutely true that God has ordained people in your life to tell you what to do and how to act. And there's no way of getting out of that. You know, recently I heard uh, a commentator, some commentators talking, and one of the commentators said something that was just, I felt so profound. I didn't even know if he was a Christian. But what he was saying was so true. He said that dictators like Putin and others, they will always fail. And he said, the reason why these dictators will always fail is because dictators fail to listen to wisdom and truth. That, wis that, that dictators hate other people telling them what to do. 
because they believe they're a law unto themselves. And so what happens, um, he says, is that people begin to become afraid or people start uh, fearing telling them the truth because they'll be ostracized and pushed out. Some of them will be killed. And he said, so what happens is eventually they surround themselves with people who just tell them what they want to hear. Someone who never corrects them. Someone who can never tell them, hey, Putin, you know, it's a bad idea to go into another country that doesn't belong to you and try and kill everybody and take over. There was nobody in his life to tell him that. And so everybody baptized exactly what he did. And I remember looking at that and saying, wow, that is true. But you know, that's also not true of Putin. That could also be true of us. You know, some of us in this room are very, very much dictators. We don't like people telling us what to do. We don't like people telling us that we're wrong. We don't like people calling out our sin. We get offended, and what happens is we cut those people out of our lives. Nobody could tell us when we're being prideful. Nobody could tell us when we're being unforgiving. And instead of listening and trying to learn, we become like a dictator. And we keep them at arm's length. And we don't want to have anything to do with them. And we say weird things like, that person's just not encouraging enough. You know, have you heard Christians say that? I'm cutting this person out of my life because they're just not encouraging me enough. No, what they're trying to do is tell you the truth. And because you're a dictator and you don't want to hear what other people have to say, and you don't want other people speaking into your life, you just wall them off and cut them out. Look, that's sin. Paul said, if you want to grow in wisdom, look, I don't know who it is, but you need to give someone permission in your life to call out your sin. Because if you do not do that, you will end up destroying your life and the lives of everybody else around you. Everybody else around you. What Paul is saying here is so profound. He says, look, You and I, as God's people, must understand that all wisdom and all knowledge, it's found in Christ. And if that is true, then you have to have a mechanism by which you submit to that and nothing else. That's the power behind what Paul is saying here. That's why wisdom is so important, because it helps govern our life. Look. We all work underneath an assumption, and here's the assumption, that we always act rationally. That we never act in a crazy way. Look, I I think of a lot of crazy things. I gotta tell you, I have a lot of crazy in me. And one of the reasons why I love my wife is I start saying things to my wife, and my wife says, Dennis, Dennis, that is crazy. You do not say that to other people. You're like, you need, you need to really, like, you need to pray about that. That's a crazy way of thinking, right? Who do you have in your life that's like that? Who calls out your crazy? I'm being serious here. Who calls out your crazy? Who do you give permission to to tell you that the way you're thinking and the things you're saying and the way you're acting is against God's law? And you need to come back into conformity with that. Look, if you don't have a person like that in your life, I urge you, I I seriously urge you to take another look at your life because you might be a dictator. 
You might have a laundry list of people in your past that you have cut off. You might have a laundry list of people you need to maybe call and apologize because they tried to teach you or tell you the truth and save your soul, and you rejected them because you don't want to hear the truth. All right. Last point. Where is wisdom found? Well, it's clear. Wisdom is found. Look at verse number three. Wisdom is found, Paul says, in Christ, in whom is is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, here's here's what's profound about that. I think we take for granted that wisdom is a person. But do you realize that that's unique to Christianity? Prior to Christianity, wisdom wasn't wasn't attached to a person. Wisdom was sort of like this this, uh, ethereal thing. It was an impersonal force. That that wisdom was either something you were born with, so it was an eight in you, or wisdom was like this impersonal force. But this is the first time in the history of the world, Christianity was the first first religion or first thought pattern or first philosophy, however you want to say that, that grounded wisdom in a person. And you know what? That's not just brilliant. That actually comports with how you and I live. Let me give you a poor example. I'm reading two books right now. One is written by, by someone I hope to get to know, right? Because he's a wonderful writer, wonderful author. And I've been reading his book. The second book was given to me by a friend. And he said, hey, Dennis, I want you to read my book. I want you to go through it and edit it. Just see, just see if, if anything I'm saying is crazy. So I'm, I'm his crazy person. You know, I'm the person that calls out the crazy in his life. So he wrote a book recently, and he gave it to me, and so I started reading it. I started reading it. And it was interesting. As I'm reading both of these books, I noticed something, and I would have never noticed, I would have never noticed it had I not known one of the authors. The book that I didn't know the author, everything he said, I kind of I approached it from a skeptical standpoint. Like, I don't know about that. And I've spent a lot of time kind of wrestling with some of the ideas in the book. But the person that I knew, I knew, his, I knew him. I know his character. I know his love for the Lord. I know his love for people. That person, as I read his book, I had a much enjoyable, I have a, a, like sort of a more enjoyable time reading his book, and I actually learned more reading his book. Although he's not the scholar on the level as the other person, I had a much, for me, reading his book was so much better, more profitable, more amazing. And, the, and I learned more from it. Why? Because I actually know the person that's writing. And so his wisdom hit me deeply. And I wasn't as suspicious about it. Why? Because I actually knew the person that was writing. And here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that if you are in relationship with Christ, Christian, why don't you read his word? Why don't you trust the wisdom that's found in this book? If God calls you to repentance, then repent. If he calls you to forgiveness, then forgive. If he calls you to surrender, then surrender. Whatever he calls you to do, you don't have to look at it in a skeptical way. You don't have to look at it as if this is the worst possible thing for you. Do you realize Jesus Christ died on the cross because he loved you? Why would he write something in his book to harm you? 
Why, did, why would he write something in his book that was not good for you, that didn't have your best interests at heart? Why, why would the Savior of the universe go through all the trouble of redemption only to write a book that would make your life miserable? The answer to the question is he wouldn't. That's why when you open up this book, everything you read, everything you see, you can trust that it's for your good and your purpose and your blessing because it comes from a Savior who loves you deeply and profoundly, more than anybody else has ever loved you and will ever love you and can possibly love you. That's why we flee to this book for wisdom and truth and hope because of the Savior that wrote it. You can trust it. You can ingest it. You can live your life by it. And I pray, God, that you do. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that this book is filled with all sorts of wisdom that comes from you, the wonderful and true God. Father, thank you so much. We can trust that what you wrote in your word is fruitful for us, your people. We can, we can trust that because we know you. We know that you have our good in mind. We know your plan to pro prosper us and bless us. Lord, I pray for these people, my people, your people, that we may lay hold of the promises in your word, the wisdom in your word, and do everything we can to live in light of it. Bless us now as we come before your table. Lord, the wisdom that's found in your table, that through mere representation of wine, juice, and bread, we get to commune with you. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.